I don't know how many of you remember as children uh, what it was like to have, or if you had siblings that you would argue regularly, and at some point you would have to make an appeal to, to mom or dad, right? You go to them in the hope for justice, right? And then uh, as a, a parent now, I'm often on the other side where um, I, I will overhear something or, or I'll, I'll come to some situation of... of uh, mortal combat <laughs> in our household, or one of them will come to me and appeal, and, and it's just so, it is so exhausting as a parent to try to sit and discern uh, who's saying what. You gather testimony from the various witnesses, and you're, you're cross-examining both sides, and you're trying to figure out what in the, how do I actually, how do I possibly do something that is fair here when it's so confusing. Like hypothetically, if I had teenage girls who would bicker in every once in a while, um, and it's like, how do I, how do you do this, right? And I'm reminded, I'm always reminded of Proverbs 18, 17 that says, the first to plead their, their case seems right until another comes and examines them. <laughs> right, and that's how it is. It is so difficult. Justice is so difficult to administer when the witnesses have an angle. And it's not even that they have an angle. They have a certain perspective. They don't know everything. They know what they know. And so even in the best of situations, when there is, there is truth being told, it is difficult to ascertain justice to do what is right, to do what is fair. And the ninth commandment is all about the, just the, the, the distortion of that process. It is about the way that justice is thwarted and great harm, incredible harm can be done when truth is abandoned by the witnesses. This morning I want to talk to you about three aspects of lying Lying uh, and the courts, lying in courts, but guess what the ninth commandment is about? Now, I want to talk briefly about lying and Jesus Christ, and then the third, lying and the Christian. So, lying in the court, lying in Christ, and lying and the Christian. And I, I as I um, was thinking about this commandment, it's such a, it is such an important aspect, an important issue. Uh, today in our culture. I've already mentioned, we went through that, that the time of lament together, and immediately you begin to think about all the various ways that words are distorted and twisted in our, in our culture today, online and in our in various institutions. Um, and, and historically, we think of the ways that in the courtroom itself, in the courtroom itself, that we've seen this happen. I don't know how many of you as children or as in, 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 in school had to read, um, you, know, the, 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 you know, the incredible book, To Kill a Mockingbird. At one point, we read this quote in the story. It says, our, uh, I think it's Atticus Finch, the father, who says it. He says, our courts have our faults. Isn't that a great line? Our courts have our faults. In other words, our courts are only going to be as good as we are. Our courts have our faults, as does any human institution. But in this country, our courts are the great levelers. Isn't that interesting? The great levelers. The idea is that whoever you are supposedly in court, you're the same. Our courts, but in this country, our courts are the great levelers. And in our courts 
all men are created equal. And of course, that line is so stands out because if you know the story of To Kill a Mockingbird, that is exactly the opposite of what happens. That the courts fail to be, that, the, that the court fails to be a great level. It fails to be this place where all men, uh, all persons, are created equal. Uh, you know, one of the most uh, one of the most um, heart wrenching books that I have read in a long time is a book called Race, Crime, and the Law. It's written by Randall Kennedy. Randall Kennedy is a um, he's a Rhodes Scholar. He's Afro-American. He is a uh, professor of law at Harvard University. This book was written over 20 years ago, but it is prophetic in what it says about race and, 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 and the law in our time. It's speaking of all, all issues related to drugs, related to, um, to abuse of police authority, um, to all these things that we have seen in the news the last four or five years, especially here in St. Louis. And what Kennedy speaks of, in fact, he spends a good portion of the, of, the, of the book talking about the history of the treatment of Afro-Americans under the law in America. And he, one of the most fascinating things that I learned, he speaks of how in the news today, what, what makes the news today is usually when Afro-American persons are abused by those in, in authority, in, in, in you know, some sort of law enforcement authority, like police officers, or, or in the criminal justice system. And there's an abuse of authority in the sense of an overreaching, an overextension of, uh, of that authority. But he says historically, and even today, the greatest crime against persons, minorities, persons of color, is overwhelmingly under protection by the law. It's under protection. Now, actually, the police don't go in those communities that the law enforcement or the criminal justice system doesn't stand up for, doesn't defend, doesn't prosecute. And he tells story after story after story that is so heartbreaking. In fact, one of those stories that he actually refers to was a story that we read as a church. This past February, as a church, we read the book called Celia, A Slave. It was about a slave girl, 14 years old, purchased, purchased here in the state of Missouri in the 1850s, while Missouri was a, a hotbed, a, literally a powder keg of, 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 of unrest as, as the whole country was on the brink of the Civil War. And it speaks of a man who was a widower who bought this 14-year-old girl for reasons I will not even mention, and, and the, the harrowing events that follow, and the ways it turned, that, that, that story turns into a simply incredible and heartbreaking a legal battle where, uh, where Celia, uh, a, I think by the time she's probably 16, 17 years old, she's put on trial for the murder of her, uh, her, her slave master. It is a heartbreaking and riveting book that you should read, and it speaks of the ways that witnesses are called to the effect to, to, to condemn uh, someone who is, is overwhelmingly innocent. And so even against, it's against the backdrop, and this is what I'm about to say is very important here, so don't, don't tune out, because I'm about to say some things that are pretty politically charged. It is against the backdrop of the, the underprotection and the, the gross and vile abuse and negligence of Afro-Americans and minorities in America that I'm about to say what I'm about to say, okay? So it's just, I want you to hear overwhelmingly the weight 
of what I'm about to say, about what I just said against what I'm about to say. Because even in our own, even in our own city here, and this is what so, this is what makes this issue so, the Ninth Commandment so relevant. So many of you have recalled, we, so many of you lived, I wasn't here at the time, but many of you were, you lived by the events of Michael, of Michael Brown and the whole events that followed in Ferguson that followed. And you remember a tagline that came out that was a, a, basically a battle cry and it still is used today. The phrase, hands up, don't shoot. And this has become in our time a, 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 um, uh, a sort of a, a um, centerpiece or a, um, an occasion around something around which everything seems to swirl around issues of race and crime and the law. And I just want to read to you a portion from the Washington Post uh, uh, from an article. This is the title of the article. Hands up, don't shoot, did not happen in Ferguson. Again, remember everything I just said here about, about the injustice of Afro, against Afro-Americans in our, in, our, in our history in the church, I mean, in our history in America and in the church. In fact, I should add, in fact, let me just pause and say that as a Presbyterian minister, I am an heir and I take part in and have responsibility for the ways that the Presbyterian church in the South not only promoted racism, but also, also was far too often silent. The Presbyterian ministers, and technically it's not our denomination, but it's our, it's our heritage. Our, our, our denomination wasn't around. But even in the, amongst the founders of the Presbyterian Church in America, you can go read documents. It's being more and more documented, and we're coming to terms with it, of founders of our, of our very denomination who were clearly racist. And, and I, I, I take ownership. In fact, when I was in Durham, we had a, a public forum that I that I um, that I um, uh, initiated in a public, you know, in a, um, the, with a uh, excuse me, I can't talk this morning. Um, uh, it was a, a, a group of, of folks who were interviewing on a, on a panel. Thank you. There we go. The word panel, um, and uh, all of our minorities, and it was a public venue, and, and it was at that context. I shared far more in depth the story, the history. Of, of Presbyterian ministers and our, and our failure uh, in this area. So I won't go into that now, but I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about that with any one of you. But it's against the backdrop of all of that that I'm about to say what I'm about to, what I'm about to say here. So the, the, the Washington Post goes on to talk about this, 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 this uh, statement, this uh, supposed statement by Michael Brown, hands up, don't shoot. And it talks about the politics behind it, and then it actually addresses the facts. Okay, and it says, in November 2014, a grand jury decided not to indict Wilson, of course, Wilson was the police officer, after finding that witness reports did not match up with the evidence. Other witnesses recanted their original accounts or changed them, calling their veracity into question. In particular, the grand jury could not confirm the hands-up-don't-shoot narrative the way it was told after the shooting. By then, however, the phrase had taken a message, uh, um, uh, taken on a message of its own. Let me continue reading here. On December 1st, 2014, four members of the Congressional Black Caucus repeated the gesture while delivering speeches on the House floor titled Black in America. 
Yet the Department of Justice's, uh, Department of Justice's investigative report, so remember, this is under Obama, so is the, the federal just, the Department of Justice it has their own independent investigation into the shooting of Michael Brown. They found federal investigators could not confirm witness accounts that Brown signaled surrender before being killed. The department's description of about 40 witness, 40, 40 witness testimonies show the original claims that Brown had his hands up were not accurate. Listen to this. This is, oh, this is the clincher. Some witnesses who claim they saw Brown's hands raised had testimonies that were inconsistent, inconsistent with physical and forensic evidence. Some admitted to federal investigators they felt pressured to retell the narrative that was being spread after Brown's shooting. Others recanted their initial testimony, saying that they had heard it through media reports or via social, via social media. A few witnesses said Brown had his hands out to his side with his palms up as if saying what? Others said Brown's hands were not raised as he was charging at Wilson. A few said Brown's hands were balled up. Investigators narrowed down the hands-up claim to a witness, witness 128, who, told, who had told his family and neighbors his inaccurate version of events as crowds gathered minutes and hours after the shooting, the report says. Another witness could not confirm what she saw because of her poor vision, but she heard a man running around the apartments along the street where Wilson shot Brown. The man was saying something to the effect of, the police shot my friend and his hands were up. The witnesses said that, quote, quickly, the, quickly, that, that said that quickly became the narrative on the street, and to her frustration, people use it both as an excuse to riot and to create a block party atmosphere. So I won't go on, but, but, but again and again, we find that the, criminal, the, the Department of Justice interviewed one witness after another and eventually found that no one had any credible report. Now, what I want you to, the, the point I want you to hear from this, this is not black and white. This is the fact that no one, no one wins. The reason I grieve this is because I care so much about the cause of justice in our culture. This is not about this, them versus us or us versus them. It's not about any. No one wins, especially the cause of Afro-Americans. It's not forwarded. It's not promoted. It's anything. It's undermined by this sort of thing. And that's exactly what the Ninth Commandment is trying to protect. Let me share with you another story that, again, is, is, not, is, is, a, is of the same sort of nature. This is taken, um, this is taken, I don't know how many of you remember this. This happened about 12, I want to say it was 2006. Um, but this happened in, in, in an area where I used to live in Durham, North Carolina. It was, a, um, it was a, uh, an event that took place on the Duke University campus. Um, let me see if I can make sure I've got it in front of me here. So in, in, uh, in Duke University in 2006, there were three students on the, on the men's lacrosse team who were accused of rape. And they were accused of rape. There were three white men. They were accused of rape of a black woman, an Afro-American woman. And instantly, this is so important, a wave of condemnation of these men swept the campus and swept the media. 
And the only defenders, listen to this, the only defenders of these three lacrosse men, lacrosse players, were three female lacrosse players. One of whom was, was, was Afro-American. Now, what's amazing that follows is that when these three young women stood up to defend these men, because they said, we know these guys, we hang out with them all the time, we know their character, and they would never do that. But that didn't stop. That didn't stop anyone from actually coming to conclusions. The Duke women lacrosse players, these are women, okay, one of whom is Afro-American. The women were characterized by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution as, quote, stupid, spoiled little girls. Like, no justice had been done, no due process, nothing, but everyone seemed to know. Uh, an- another, another magazine, the New York Times, called these three women just people who, quote, negate common sense. We all know what happened. I, mean, I can judge from hundreds of miles away that surely these three college boys, this is what they did, right? The Philadelphia Daily News called them dumb, and said they were, these three women were ignorant and insensitive. That was the Philadelphia Inquirer. So in other words, members of the media and a lot of the academy, a lot of the intelligentsia, hundreds of miles away, who had never laid eyes on the, men's, on the men in question, were so convinced of their guilt on the basis of, of a commonly shared a priori notions of, that's held by, so, you know, by just so many people that they could assail young women who had had direct personal knowledge of the individuals in question. And what's amazing here, and this is from uh, Thomas Sowell, who's an economist, um, uh, Afro-American economist, a legendary. He writes, despite the utter certainty and condescension in the media, devastating facts that later, devastating facts that later came out, exonerating the accused men, and leading to the resignation and disbarment of the district attorney who prosecuted them, show that it was the women on the Duke lacrosse team who were right and the media that was wrong. So did you hear that? The woman who, who prosecuted these men was ultimately disbarred. She lost her job as the district attorney because she messed up so badly. People's lives, people's reputations are at stake. And we live in a world where the media, where people are so ready to draw conclusions. And the ninth commandment is calling us to step back, to wait. To say, you know, I don't know. We're going to have to wait and see. It's not calling us to cowardice. It's not calling us to to just not make strong claims. It's calling us to be so careful with our words, to be so slow to judge this is where I am so guilty. I don't know about you, but I'm so guilty. As a husband, as a father, as a minister, how many times am I guilty of what's called uncharitable, premature judgments? Uncharitable, premature judgments. Premature in the sense I don't have all the facts. I have not bothered to actually, to actually listen more, to learn more. It's uncharitable in the sense, what do I do? I just assume the worst of them, right? The classic story is, is this happened early on in our marriage, and it's happened many, many times since. But there was one time when Sarah had made this, this man, this chocolate raspberry, it's a bunk cake, is that what it is? It's like a half, half donut 
sort of thing. You know what I'm talking about? You know, it's just amazing. And it's like this chocolate, got chocolate chunks all inside it, and you pour like, this raspberry sauce all over it, and it's just like unbelievable, right? And so I was so excited. She made it on a Saturday, I think. And, uh, and the next day, we, we, so I had it Saturday night. I was like, oh, man, I'm going to eat this thing for the next four days. This is going to be awesome. All right, this, is, this, is very, this is very me, okay? So, um, so then, then, then it's, we go to church the next morning. And we come back from church. We have our lunch, and I'm thinking. I, go, I think I, go, I went out, out, of the, out of the kitchen for a second. And, um, and I'm thinking, oh, man, I have this dessert. It's going to be so amazing. And I get back, and I look at the cake, and there's this massive piece missing. Like, just, like, it's gone. And Sarah's there like nothing happened. You know what I mean? Like, like, like whatever, you know? And I said, Sarah, wait, what happened to the cake? Like, you know, I'm thinking what? I'm thinking like she just, rah, rah, or I'm gone or something, just downed it, right? And she turned to me and she looked at me and said, oh. she said, I put a piece of cake in your lunch for tomorrow. Yeah, oh, right? And that's, 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 the, that's, 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 that's like a small it's a small way that I have uncharitably, prematurely judged my wife. As my daughters have gotten older, there's been several times where I have been too quick to, to, to accuse, too quick, and I've played the part of a false witness. That's what I'm doing. And it so erodes my trust with my own children. It's like, Dad, really? That's what you think of me? That's where your first thought goes? But it's not only at home, it's not only in those relationships, it's also publicly. All around us, we live in a, in, a, in a culture where people are so immediately ready to be victimized, they're ready to be offended, just like me. I'm so quick to take things so personally. Oh, how dare you? Oh, me. Don't you know who I am? I'm an important person, right? And it's like the truth is it's not even about me. It may be against me, but at the end of the day, it's not about me. And that's what's the beauty of the ninth commandment. Is the ninth commandment is making all false accusations ultimately a sin against whom? Against God, against, against the, the, the creator, against the judge. And so the beauty here, the importance of the ninth commandment is just in our day so, um, so, so important. I just want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to look at your life and say, where am I making premature, uncharitable judgments? Am I doing it in my marriage? Am I doing it with my family? Look, I'm not, call, I'm not calling you to, that na- na- to being naive. This isn't about naivety, okay? I understand. It's, you know, we recognize there are patterns of behavior. We, we can begin to predict someone's character. I understand. But there is, there is a, there is, it is very tragic when we go about this and we, be, we we're guilty of, the ninth, of breaking the ninth commandment. Let me talk briefly here about, um, and I just, let me just mention the news media. Just, you just see this all the time. You can talk about people like Clarence Thomas. Think of Brett Kavanaugh. We think of the, the, the ways that people get crucified in our culture today. And, and the ninth commandment calls us not only to simply not do that, to say, look, I'm not going to you know, falsely accuse him. I'm not going to jump into conclusions. The ninth commandment also calls us to actually defend people's reputation. Does that make sense? You, when, when, you're in a, when you're in a work environment and someone is there gossiping about someone else, it is incumbent upon you to say, stop, time out, whoa, wait a minute. What do we really know about Joe? Do we really know these things? Is this really true? Is this really helpful? Is this really based on fact? 
And that can get us in trouble. We don't like to do that. We can be like, whoa, those people are gossiping. And we do nothing. We're actually called to, 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 to advocate, to clear the names of others. That's what, that's what we would want done for ourselves. Right? What's it like when someone comes to you and said, yeah, you know, so-and-so was gossiping about you. I heard, overheard them. And you say, well, what did you say? And they say, well, I didn't say anything. Well, great, thanks. Right? We're, co- we're called to be advocates of that. So that's, that's lying in the courts. Let me briefly talk about lying in Christ and lying as a Christian. Lying in Christ. We are told, those of most all of you know this, we are told that in Jesus' own trial, false witnesses were brought forward against him. In fact, two false witnesses. Why two? Because the law, the law commands it. Because it's only on the basis of two, and I'll, I'll talk about this briefly in a second here. It's on the basis of two witnesses that a, that a person can be, can be convicted. And it's the, through those false witnesses, and their own witnesses doesn't, don't communicate. But there comes a point where Jesus himself answers a question honestly. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus gives this very powerful response. And that is when the high priest stands up, tears his clothes, and says, why do we need any more witnesses? And it's in the wake of that that the single greatest miscarriage of justice, the one truly innocent person, was in every way condemned and everywhere seen as rejected by men and rejected by God hanging on a tree listen if you have been guilty if you have been you are a victim of slander you're a victim of gossip there is one who can identify with you a thousand times over no one was more misunderstood no one was more misrepresented no one was more framed. No one was more, no one was more voiceless than Jesus Christ. And, and, and Jesus, Jesus, that, that, Jesus' trial is a picture, listen to this, is a picture of what God endures every single day. If you know what it's like to be maligned, if you know what it's like to be vilified as a parent, <laughs> or be vilified at work, if you know what it's like to be underestimated, if you know what it's like to just have your name just drowned through the mud, welcome to God's world. Every day, you and I are just so ready to accuse him, so ready to grumble, so ready to complain, and we're his church. We're not even the world itself. God is one who is supremely slandered. In fact, if you've ever watched the, not too long ago, I sat down with my girls and we watched the classic Harrison Ford film, The Fugitive. I don't know if you've seen that, The Fugitive. The Fugitive is a wonderful story. It's basically a story of the Bible. It's a story of someone who is the healer, the provider of life, being falsely accused, being, being sent to prison. And the rest of the story is the vindication of his name. And that is exactly what the, the Bible is all about. The Bible is about a God who is the giver of life, a healer, one who is the Lord of all, of all blessing, the greatest share, the strong share, and he is utterly maligned in the garden by a serpent, by a serpent who is bent on lies. Jesus refers to, the, to, the, to Satan as the father of lies. And this is what's so important. 
When we give way to deceit, when we remain silent when we should speak, when we just sort of subtly twist our words, we are becoming the mouthpiece of Satan. He is the accuser. And even as I mentioned the other day in parenting, the parenting class, there is something about lying that erodes, that, that, that destroys, that undermines in like nothing else. And there's nothing as beautiful, as intimate, as binding, as telling the truth. The Proverbs say an honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. Isn't that beautiful? Even when it's confession. You know how many times in my marriage I've confessed things to Sarah again and again and again. Things that are just, just I know are going to hurt her so deeply. Things I know are just destructive. And it's not the first time or the second time. It's the hundredth time. And every, bar, every part of me is saying, this is not, not going to do, nothing good will come from this. And every time I'm amazed at what God does, at the intimacy he creates through confession and through forgiveness. You want to see a marriage where, or any relationship where there's lots of intimacy? I'll show you a relationship where there's lots of confession and lots of forgiveness. So I want to encourage you, especially you men, to lead in your marriages and your, and your, as you fathers, to lead in your families as being the one who is quickest to repent, quickest to confess, quickest to be honest. Finally, lying in the Christian. Lying in the Christian. Our testimonies, we are to be those who testify about Jesus Christ. We are to have a witness. Listen to Jesus' very sobering words. In Matthew 10, whoever acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, oh, gee, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a Christian, or I, I, I'm not going to like talk about Jesus in the, in the, in the, um, at work. I'm not talking about Jesus in the classroom. We're embarrassed. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do you hear those words? Those are very strong words. And Jesus says right after that, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to bring division in your family. I came to bring division in, 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 at, at, in, the, in the workplace. I came to bring division in the classroom. And so you are called to speak my name and to create division, to create, to break this counterfeit peace. See, there's coming a day of incredible vindication, of reversal, when those who've exalted themselves will be humbled and those who've humbled themselves will be exalted. A day when the name of Christ and all who own it will be exalted and magnified. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So when you are in your classroom, when you are in, in, in your workplace, this isn't about sort of, you know, uh, just, uh, what's the word? It's not about just handing out tracts. That's not what I'm talking about here. It's not about any sort of um, uh, just witnessing in that name. I'm talking about defending the name of Christ owning the name of Christ in, in, in your relationships and in public places and venues like a classroom or the workplace. Understand, 
bear the name of Jesus proudly. If someone says something to you about, someone is like, you're at work and someone disparages Christians, you can say, you know what? Jesus Christ was the most influential person in human history. And yes, I follow him. Jesus Christ was followed by Martin Luther King Jr. He was followed by Mother Teresa, and I follow him too. I follow the one who is love. I follow the most welcoming and wise person who ever lived. And usually when I find that something is against Jesus, it's a bad idea. I'm not going to apologize for being a Christian. That's what you say. I'm not going to apologize for being a Christian. Finally, Christ's testimony about us. Christ, or excuse me, um, are, are lying in the Christian. I want you to hear me close with this because it's so beautiful. And twice in the Old Testament law, God says that he will not acquit the guilty. In Exodus 23, he says, Have nothing to do with a false charge, and do not put an innocent person or honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. Literally, it says, I will not justify the ungodly. That's what it says. The text says, I will not justify the ungodly. In Deuteronomy 25, he says, When people have a dispute, they are to take it to the court, and the judges will decide the cases, justifying the innocent and condemning the ungodly. And then in Romans 4, we hear these incredible words. Are you ready for this? To the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly. Their faith is credited as righteousness. You see, we have this God who came, before, who, who came to earth, and he is one, listen to this, he is so, was so willing to be condemned unjustly so that you and I could be vindicated unfairly so that you and I could be seen as though we had done nothing wrong whatsoever. Brothers and sisters, if you have confessed your sin to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have surrendered yourself to him, no matter what you have done, you stand before the judge of all the earth as one who has done nothing wrong. As sinful, as vile, as tainted, as weak, as struggling as we are, there is no condemnation for those who are united to Jesus Christ. Do you, do you revel in that? Do you rejoice in that? There you are uncondemnable. That is the word of hope. That's finally where the ninth commandment leads. It leads to a courtroom where the utterly guilty are utterly vindicated, or utterly cleared, acquitted of everything they ever have done or will do. Are you in Jesus Christ? Do you know him? Have you surrendered your life to him? Because that is what awaits at the final judgment. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, um, we think of your mighty purposes, your mighty love for justice, the way that you are a God who, um, who knows. You are a God who remembers. And you are, so, you are so slow to anger, so abounding in steadfast love. And we see that in the person of Jesus. Father, I pray for everyone here. Would you make us slow to speak, quick to listen? Would you make us so slow to judge?
to judge charitably, to judge um, not prematurely, but in the fullness of time. Lord, help us to be bold to defend the reputations of others, to be willing to be misunderstood, to, 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 to love uh, in a way, Father, that, is, that risks condemnation. Lord, make us bold, make us fearless as a community. Lord, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Brothers and sisters, let's stand and sing together.